welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. This is lecture number two, um, and this one is entitled Life is an Apprenticeship. And if the first lecture was a little more about the theology of vocation and how that played out in uh, people's lives, this is more uh, of, a, of, a, of a, I guess, a story mixed in with some, some experiences, uh, maybe a little regret. Uh, and some gratitude. So again, thank you for the opportunity. Again, I've shared with you in the first lecture my experience on paper. Uh, I am a Red Seal endorsed plumber. Uh, I spent four years in an apprenticeship, uh, went to school, uh, passed all my exams. Uh, I came within 1% of being the top apprentice in our provincial union for plumbers and pipe fitters and steam fitters. I actually worked with the guy who was beat me by 1%. Um, and we, we would poke each other all the time. And uh, I'll, I may bring him up a little bit later in our lecture here. Um, but like I said, lots of experience, lots of stories, some regret. Um, and the regret really comes from the fact, like I said earlier in the, in the previous lecture, I come from a family of tradespeople. My dad was, an elect was a power line technician. He wasn't an electrician in the sense of you know, working on electrical in homes and in, in industrial plants, but he was, he was the guy that would bring the power to your house. And so when a tree fell on the power line, he was the one that showed up. Uh, in fact, he went out to a, we called them trouble calls. He went out to a trouble call late at night by himself, which was dangerous, um, but they were allowed to do it. And he fell off the pole because lightning hit the ground about 20 feet from the pole that he was working on. And he fell from the pole, missed a huge boulder by about five feet. He broke his hip. Um, and this was three weeks before his anniversary with my mom. And my dad, being Irish-Scottish, uh, they got married on March 17th. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so March 17th, my mom and my dad 
went out dancing. Three weeks after he broke his pelvis. He's got crutches and the whole thing. So um, lots of stories to share about being in a trades uh, life and a trades family. Um, and uh, some regret because, in the sense, my dad was always pushing me to get into the trade. Always pushing me to get into the trade. And when I was young, like really young, like just coming out of high school, the only thing I had in my head at that time was, I don't want to work with you. I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna be beside you, I don't wanna work with you. I mean, I love you, you're my dad, I was a Christian at the time, but I did not wanna spend my day-to-day -day life with this guy. I was, to use the biblical word, stupid. I didn't realize that the province was so big. <laughs> and that the chances of me actually working with my dad were slim to none. Uh, so there's some regret that I didn't get into it sooner. Um, but in God's providential care and, and in his love and mercy towards me, uh, I eventually got into it later in life, and, and I'm very thankful uh, for that. Again, um, getting back into the, the, the topic of the shortage of skilled labor, I mentioned that there, is, there was a shortage of skilled labor 20 and a half years ago. There's a shortage now. There will always be a shortage. There are less people getting into the skilled trades now than there were five years ago. There are some trades that are on the, on the brink of going dormant because there's not enough people coming in and people are retiring out. And, uh, and in the province of British Columbia, there are over 40 Red Seal trades just in our province. And there are more trades than that, but they're not all Red Seal endorsed. And so uh, what's the difference? The, the difference is, is Red Seal allows this tradesperson to work across the country of Canada, east to west, north to south, with very little barrier, okay? So as a plumber from BC, if I had to, I could go work in Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland, and my credentials would be recognized. And, and that, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And so there are 40 of these Red Seal trades in the province. Uh, there are more than that across the country, but uh, there, there's a, over 40. So there's no shortage of trades to look at to, to, to get into. Uh, I mentioned earlier the difference between skilled labor versus labor, and even that, that still exists today. Um, I was a union plumber, which meant I worked for what was called a local, uh, and I was essentially loaned out to a contractor to do the work. And so the, the, the advantage to that was is that if the work ever became so little that they had to lay me off, I would go back to the union hall and they would dispatch me out to another contractor. Uh, but God didn't have that happen in my life. Um, in fact, I started my career uh, as a plumber at BCIT. And I'll be honest with you, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Because I picked electrician as my first one to get into, but it had a waiting list of two years to get in. Just to get in. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. I got a wife and I got kids. I, I can't wait two years. And then I looked at being a steam fitter or a boiler maker, because that, that was cool. They worked with big equipment, and I mean, look at me, right? I don't fit under people's sinks that well. Um, so I thought, that's cool. And there's welding and all this other stuff. I thought, that's cool. But a lot of that was out of the town work. So I'd be out of town four, five, six, seven, eight weeks back for a short period of time, and then back out to camp. Little kids, um, kind of newly married, that just wasn't going to work for us. Uh, so I picked plumber, because there was no wait list, and I could work local. And I really didn't know what a plumber did, I did, other than change toilets and work on sinks. 
but I got into I got into entry level trades training at BCIT, and soon discovered that there was more to this trade than meets the eye. It's not just all about toilets and sinks. Okay, in fact, in my career, uh, less than two percent of what I did in my whole career dealt with toilets and sinks in somebody's home. Less than two percent. I spent the majority of my life in commercial and industrial and institutional work. Um, so I've, I've worked in every hospital from Lionsgate out to Chilliwack. L literally every hospital. Um, I've been into multiple schools, universities. I've spent years of my life at the airport. I've spent years of my life at UBC. Um, and that, that's a whole other story I could tell you where I almost got knocked off a building and, and I could have died. But God protected me. I actually used that as a doorway to get into a further stage of my career which I'll share with you a little bit later. So there's more than meets the eye to most trades. Okay, there's more than what meets the eye to most trades. What you think you know of a trade, you probably know about five to 10% if I'm gracious, because there's just so much more to a skilled trade than what meets the eye. Now, I wanna give a little bit of a historical background or what I call underpinning to the trades. It's no surprise to us that certain trades have been around since creation. It's no surprise, right? Uh, in fact, our savior was the son of a carpenter. So that trade has been around for a very long time. Um, I think some of the cooler trades like masonry and blacksmithing, right? Uh, the blacksmithing is still a trade, by the way. It's still a red seal trade. Not very many people are getting into it anymore because there's no value in it for people outside of farmers who want to have a farrier come to their, their farm and change horseshoes. Um, or you get into what they call uh, architectural ironwork, where you, you create works of art out of metal. And so you have to learn uh, what it means to be a blacksmith, to, to work with metal. Um, but th that trade is no longer what it used to be. But way, way back, thousands of years, blacksmiths were, were looked at as some of the most important people in a town. Because they were the ones who fixed your horse's hooves. They were the ones that put hinges on your doors. They were the ones that put metal around your wheels on your, on your wagons, right? Um, and so let's just start, I think, in the medieval period, the early medieval period. There were lots of tradespeople around. Um, a, lot of, a lot of masons, uh, carpentry was around. Uh, surveying was a skill trade. So I don't know if you know this or not, but George Washington was trained to be a surveyor. That was his trade. Um, we could even we could spend some time going back and look at ancient Egypt even, and, and look at how they built these pyramids with no modern technology. Okay, and we still marvel at that, right? And if I can put a bit of parentheses in here, as a tradesperson who worked in construction, I can't tell you how many times we would drive by a building in the vehicle, and I would point the building out to my family and go, "You see that building?" I was in that building, I was on that floor, or I helped build this, or I did that, and, and they would always roll their eyes at me. Yeah, yeah, you've told us a million times. But it's a legacy. That building will outlive me. And so there's, there's, there's some connection there. But way back in the early medieval period, um, there, were, there were tradespeople. And they were, they, were, they were valuable, but at this point in history, they hadn't learned the power of community yet. So in, in a typical little town, you would have a blacksmith, you'd have a baker, you'd have a carpenter. Uh, and, and, and later on, they became known as thatchers or roofers. You had people that would take care of these things for you. Sometimes 
they were the same person, but more often than not, they were, they were different trades in this town. And as time went on, people wanted to build things like castles. And castles, for the most part, took decades to build. And if you, if you look into the history, especially of, of, of uh, um, Richard the Longshanks, he's known for building probably the most castles in his reign as a king. It's astronomical how many castles he built because it took decades to build these things. And he would build them all over England and in some parts of Scotland. Okay? And it, the crews that it would take to build a castle, we're not talking 20, 30, 50, 100 people. Sometimes you're talking up to 1,000 tradespeople. Okay? And they're not just a, you know, a guy who shows up with his tools. He brings his whole family and sometimes his extended family. So if there was a castle being built, you would literally have a town of people around that castle. Okay? And it became its own economy. And tradespeople began to realize that there was value in sharing technology, technique, knowledge with other tradespeople. And so about the middle of the medieval period, middle of the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, we call them most, most frankly, we see a rise of community of tradespeople, and they began to call themselves guilds. And they started to become very powerful because not only were they in control of the commerce moving out of these little cities, but they controlled apprenticeship. And apprenticeship then was really different than it is now. In my apprenticeship, I spent four years. I got to spend the whole time with my family. I was, I'd finish work, I'd go home, I'd sleep in my home. I'd be with my family on the weekends, and Monday morning I'm back to work. But back in this day, back in the medieval period, if I had a son that I wanted to send out as an apprentice, I would literally farm my son out to a tradesman. And he would stay with him, literally live with him for years. Sometimes up to seven years. And then the, the, the path was is that my son, my, my figurative son here, would go and spend seven years with this man, learn this trade, and he had to prove to this tradesman that he was worthy to be sent out to do his own work. That's where the term journeyman came from. They would journey from one area to another. Most Importantly, they would journey away from the person that they were learning from. That person that they were learning from was often called a master craftsman. And that master craftsman did the same thing. He would apprentice for a long period of time. And then he would, he would prove himself to be capable of the work. He would go out as a journeyman and try to establish himself in a, in a small town or, or a small city and develop a reputation, and then he would invite other masters to come to his area to observe his work, to give him literally a stamp that would, he could now call himself a master so that he could now take on apprentices. Okay? So it was, it was, a, it was a very tight-knit community when it came to apprenticeship. And it didn't matter if you were a blacksmith or a carpenter or a mason or a baker. You did that, you did that apprenticeship. 
Now, oftentimes, they were taking the trade of their dad. So they were already in the house, and they would already, already do the work. And in some cases, the sons never left the home. They would stay with mom and dad, and dad would pass away, and son would take over, and they would just roll it through the family, generations that way. But when it came for these large building projects, you would have hundreds of journeymen come to this castle, and you would have one master craftsman who probably didn't do any work by hand at all. He was in charge of those journeymen who came there. Okay, so if you picture a castle in your, in your mind. There was, a, there was a master mason, and he was in charge of the whole masonry part of the building of a castle, which is pretty much 80 or 90% of the castle. And these guys got so well known that they would build castles for different kings in different regions. <laughs> okay? So sometimes they didn't even get to finish the castle that they, were, that they had started before they were literally bought to come and do a castle for this king. So it became very powerful and very lucrative to be a tradesperson. And that was a difference from skilled labor because now you could prove your value to people. You were, you were worth more than just plowing a field or digging a ditch. And so in the late medieval period, you had these guilds forming and these guilds were becoming so powerful that they could control commerce in and out of a city. Because they, they essentially had two different kinds of guilds. They had a merchant guild, and then they had a crafts guild. Now the merchant guild were your, were your textiles, like, like clothing and jewelry, okay? blacksmithing. Then you had, you had your, your crafts, which were carpentry and masonry. And they began, to, they began to conspire together to control what happened within the city. And they, they began to garner a lot of, a lot of influence and, and, and a lot of um, pull on the local magistrates and the kings. So in the, in the late medieval period, as we see in, in history, that some of the nobility now falling to the rise of civil government... Civil government's looking around and saying to themselves, there's a bunch of carpenters over here, and they've had control of this one area for a very long time. And if we keep allowing that to happen, they may take over from us. So about the mid-16th century to the early 17th century, guilds were abolished in Europe. They were abolished. You could be a tradesperson, but you couldn't belong to a guild. You couldn't start a guild because it was dangerous to the rising governments. So they went underground. And some people say that that was the beginning of organized crime because they were forced to go underground and they started doing all of their dealings in the dark, in the secret. Because if they got caught, they would be sent to jail or worse. And then we all know that the Renaissance happens, right? Dark ages are ending. The Renaissance comes, comes flourishing back. And one of the key things about the Renaissance was a hearkening back to the Greek and Roman era, right? Art, literature, theology, science, all these things started rising up again, okay? So now all these tradespeople that were masons, now they could, they could get back to building things. And the value of, of hard, skilled labor began to rise again, it became even more niched now. So if you were a sculptor, that was worth more than a mason. 
Because a mason was, would work with stone and would build things, but a sculptor would take that stone and turn it into something beautiful. Then the Reformation came. Um, I talked about the Reformation in the last lecture. And how the Reformation really pushed hard against the Roman Catholic view of a higher calling and a lower calling in life, right? Where the lower calling was all about, you know, just the mundaneness of your, of your life, whether you were farmers or bakers or whatever. But the high calling of life was the clergy. Because you could spend all your time in prayer and meditation. You never had to get your hands dirty. Then we know the Reformation gave way to the Puritan era. And I won't spend any time in the Puritan era because we spent a good chunk of time in the last lecture on that. But after that became industrialization. The, uh, the advent of steam. That made a huge difference in, in rising countries, especially England. Railroads were beginning to be built. Old sailed ships were being replaced by steamboats. And so industrialization began to take over the trade sectors. And then you had the industrial revolutions, where instead of having one or two ladies in a garage working on a loom creating fabric, you would have factories of looms. And with the advent of industrialization and mechanization, you had an increase in the abuse of the worker. Not just, you know, mothers and fathers having to work 12, 14, 16-hour days, seven days a week. But their children were, in, were encouraged to come to the factories. And sometimes the children would watch mom and dad work because eventually they would get big enough that they would take over. Or if mom and dad got sick, the kids would step in and take over. And that's how it started, but then it quickly eroded into the fact that the kids were smaller, they could fit into the machinery to fix it. Sometimes while it was still running. And there are, there are accounts of children dying in front of their parents in the machine that they're fixing. Mining is another horrific story where children were used to, to mine coal because they were small. And this, this may shock some people, but considered less valuable than an adult. So there was the industrialization period. And then there was modernization, where we move out of the steam era you know, in, into the technology digital era, and even now into the nuclear era. And skilled trades have, have evolved right from the dawn of creation to today. Uh, I, I, I taught... My, my trade at BCIT for 12, 13 years. And I was shocked at just how quickly things were changing out in the field by talking to my apprentices and asking them, so what are you doing now to, to do this? And they say, oh, we're using this material now. And I'm like, what? You're doing what? We would never have even dreamed of doing that when I was in the field. And I would ask them, are you using this material anymore? And they'd look at me like, are you crazy? That material costs an arm and a leg to get, and it takes twice as long to work with. Why would we do that? I don't know, because lasts a long time? I don't know. But the modernization of trades has just skyrocketed. And so you, you have this, this evolution of, of, of society, and the trades have kept along with it every step of the way. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about the question, what can the skilled trades do for you? And I want to encourage you with some things. First of all, you can learn and earn. That sounds a little cliche, right? But you can learn and earn at the same time. There were many apprentices, even in my classes when I was an apprenticeship, going to apprenticeship class, there were many apprentices who were being paid to go to school. That was one of the reasons why I looked at going into being a power line technician or electrician, because if you were part of the union, they paid you to go to school. They paid your wage. And at that time, it was 20 bucks an hour just for entry-level apprentices. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good wage. And they're going to pay me 20 bucks an hour to sit in a classroom for six hours a day, eight, eight weeks? Sign me up. <laughs> now, there, that, wasn't, that wasn't for everybody. Not everybody. I didn't have that when I went to school, but some did. But more importantly, when I was out in the field learning how to do this craft and working really hard, I was earning a good living. Right? And I know everything's relative, but I was earning such a good living that I could, we could afford to have my wife home. There were, there were and don't get me wrong, it wasn't glamorous. We, didn't, we weren't throwing $1,000 bills out the windows. We were driving down the road. But the Lord was blessing it. And I made a pretty good wage. So I was learning as I was earning. And probably more importantly, and I say this a lot now to young people who are looking at whether they want to go to university or they want to get into skilled trades. And both paths are, are great. But I often bring this up is that most, most students who go into university come out with student debt. And not just you know a few thousand dollars of student debt, like tens of thousands of dollars. And some will never be able to pay it back. It'll be a burden on their back for the rest of their life. And I, and I, and I, make, I make the comparison to the fact that as that person is creating these student loans in tens of thousands of dollars, as a tradesperson, you could be making that much and putting it in the bank. Instead of having it as a debt load, you could be putting it into something that's more valuable especially if you're young and you have the ability to stay at home. So you can learn while you earn. Secondly, you provide for your family. And I've talked a lot about that. But uh, there, there's just, as a, as, a, as a guy, it's really satisfying to know that I can provide for my family. It's very satisfying to know that I can provide for my family. Thirdly, I would encourage you that there are opportunities beyond your expectation. I remember I was about a month out from finishing my entry-level trades training at BCIT. So I had no job. I was getting trained, no job. Um, and a couple of the instructors uh, asked me if I wanted to talk to a certain individual about a job. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and it turned out that, that the individual was responsible for getting my job even before I finished school. And I remember one of the things he asked me, he says, so why did you get into plumbing? And I still had really not a clue as to what plumbing really was all about. I said, well, I, you know, I kind of like working indoors, and I can change some toilets and some sinks. And he just laughed at me. He goes, you have really no idea what you're getting into, do you? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. And he goes, that's okay. Are you willing to learn? Yeah. Yeah, I'm willing to learn. And okay. And literally two weeks later, I had a job before I was finished school. So I finished school, and I finished school on Friday. The very next Monday, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a job. Still not knowing a lot, but I was there. Uh, so opportunities beyond your expectation. You're, you're going to meet so many different people. 
from all different walks of life. All different, uh, if, if I even dare to use the term, I don't like using it so much, but even different uh, levels of society, you're going to meet so many different kinds of people. Um, it's amazing what, what God will do for you in, 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 your, in your experience as a tradesperson. You're going to work on different jobs. You're going to go to different locations. You're going to work in different environments. You're going you're gonna to have different experiences. I mean, I, like I said, I've worked in every hospital from Lionsgate out to Chilliwack. They're all different. I've worked in some really old hospitals like St. Paul's. Where there are, there are tunnels and corridors in the bowels of St. Paul's Hospital that you need to be a hobbit to go into because the doors are so small. Okay, I've been there. I, I've been in some schools where the foundation of the school is literally bricks that have been just stacked on top of each other and there's a dirt floor. Okay, the building's 110 years old. It's, it's, some of it's very, I've worked in some of the most high-tech sectors uh, for fuel cell research where I'm working with process gases in, in excess of 5,000 PSI. I'm building the piping systems to take this stuff. And I'm, I'm signing papers saying that I won't tell one group of scientists in one room what's in the other room across the hall because they're not even allowed to know what's going on. But I'm in and out all over the place doing work. And so it's, it's just amazing how many different things you'll be exposed to doing. Um, I've, I've, I've worked at the airport. You can, if you go to, this is, I love saying this, you go to Google Earth. Does anybody go into Google Earth anymore? Go to Google Earth, type in Vancouver uh, Airport. You'll see a bunch of solar panels on the domestic building. I did those. I did those. I didn't make the solar panels, but I installed them. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, I've also been in some situations in hospitals that have been pretty scary. Where I've been working on a ladder and somebody's in a car accident and they wheel the gurney right beside my ladder. I quietly get down and walk away. I've worked in palliative care units. And you, you soon appreciate the brevity of life. So you get to do all these different things and it's beyond your wildest dreams of what you could do. And you're going to build relationships. I call it forged in fire. There's still three guys that I will keep in contact with. Not so much now, but I used to a, long, a while ago. <clears throat> we, we three, there's four of us, um, we started our apprenticeship together and we worked in the same organization. And, and, and from what I understand, one of them is still at that organization now. Uh, another guy's gone on and... and uh, uh, built his own company and uh, another guy is working on the island. But those are relationships that I'll have for the rest of my life. And so these, these, sometimes these relationships are forged, sometimes literally in fire. Um, and then there's the education piece. And I think if, if somebody was to say to me, when I first started my career as a plumber, first week on the job, if somebody was to come to me and say, you know, in about six and a half years, you're going to be at the most prestigious institute in the province teaching the trade that you're going to learn. I would have just laughed. But literally six and a half years after I started, I started teaching my trade at BCIT. I would have never thought that in a million years. 
And it was through BCIT that I went and got a master's degree. Paid for by the institute. I was able to get other certifications and get a diploma in adult education to teach adults in higher ed. All paid for by the institution. I would have never dreamed of that being possible before. I sat on education councils, which are councils that essentially govern the academic integrity of an institution. I'm a tradesperson. I'm sitting around the table with doctors. I'm a little intimidated. And they're looking at me and going, it's kind of cool that you're here. We've never seen a tradesperson here before. Thank you, Lord. But I think most importantly, the skilled trades can help you build a legacy. They can help you build a legacy. And I'm not necessarily talking about a, you know, your career and whatever you're going to do or whatever you pick. And, and that's important. You want to do a good job and you, do, you work hard for the Lord. Um, you never want to let that down. But you begin to build a legacy. And that legacy can look like buildings where you drive by and you go, yep, did that. Right? Or, or in my instance, as a plumber, we drive by a, uh, a, uh, a waste treatment plant. Been in there. Chemical treatment plant. Been there. Hospitals. Yeah. Medical gas. Done that. The only thing I haven't really worked on is nuclear. That's really the only thing that was left. <laughs> but you build a legacy. And, and people still, well, I shouldn't say still, I'll back up. When I was at, T, when I was at BCIT, uh, I would run into the odd apprentice uh, who worked for an organization that I used to work for. They go, oh, yeah, you're Tim Carson. We hear about you a lot. Ah, <laughs> don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. Was it good? Oh, yeah, it's all good. You build a legacy. So by God's grace, you begin influencing people even without you knowing it. And may I dare say, in a Christian, biblical way, there's a certain amount of pride to have in your work. You never want to be boastful where you, you just shine the light on what you do and only what you do and you know, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. But there's, there's, a, there's a certain sense of pride that when you finish something and you step back and you look at it and you go, a certain time ago, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, this wasn't here. Now it's here. And it's probably going to last longer than I'm going to be alive. That's kind of cool. And if something goes wrong with it, they're going to call me to come and fix it. That's kind of cool. I, I, I don't want it to sound like, you know, a pride thing, but there's, there's, there's just a certain amount, I think, I may I even dare say it, of, of creational pride, that you, you can look at that and say, you know, that is good. That is good. But I also want to, I also want to tell you this. The trades are hard work. It's hard work. I know, I know a lot of hairdressers because of the work that I've done in my current job. And you would think, hairdressing, that can't be hard work compared to plumbing. Have you stood on your feet for 12, 14 hours a day, cutting people's hair? Having to deal with clients 
owning your own business, worrying if you can make payroll, or worrying if you can pay the rent on the chair in this salon. It's hard work. It's not a cakewalk. And so when I had the opportunity to talk to parents and, and future uh, apprentices about the trades, I always made sure that I would tell them it's, it's not easy, but it's good. I think young men especially should come home dog-tired. For one, it keeps them out of trouble. But two, it reminds us, me included, that my God doesn't rest. And my God never gets tired. And as much as tired as I am, where I literally will fall on the couch and go to sleep in an instant, my God is still there. He's watching over me, even as I breathe. So it's hard work. It's not a cakewalk, but it's good work. It's honest work. Dirty hands, clean money. It's good work. I also tell people, You'll need math and science. I can't tell you how many students I've had in my classes who left high school or university because they hated math and science and thought they'd come into the trades. And they soon realized within a couple weeks that 80% of what most tradespeople do has something to do with math and science. Especially as a plumber, I'm dealing with the laws of thermodynamics and hydronic heating and cooling systems. I have to know how this stuff works. I have to know how heat transfer works. I need to know about combustion and combustion analysis. There's a lot of stuff I need to know that I didn't learn in math in grade 10. But I need the math that I got in grade 10 and 11 and 12 to help me do my job. So you, you're never going to escape the math and science. And so I tell people, if, you, if you're not really good at it, that's okay. You've got the rest of your life to get better. It's not like you need to be Einstein before you become a tradesperson. And there are people who will teach you what you need to know when you get into it so that you can do it well. And you'll just practice it over and over and over to the point where you memorize these numbers and you just do it in your sleep. But don't be afraid of the math and science. You'll need it. And don't, don't think you can escape it by going to the trades because you'll, you, you'll need it more than you realize. Sometimes I ask the question, when somebody says to me, why should I go into the skilled trades? I'll say to them this, I'll say, so why should you go into the skilled trades? I like to turn the question back on them. Why, should, why do you think you should go into the skilled trades? What have you heard? Have you heard that we make six figures a year? Have you heard that we, all, we drive these lifted trucks all over the place and we own two homes and, you know, we, we only work 20 hours a week and, you know, we charge out an exorbitant amount of money and all of us are just, you know, these 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 bank rolling bosses, have you, what have you heard about the skilled trades? And thankfully, no one's ever gone that far with their reports back to me. But oftentimes, they have a, a very different perspective of trades. And so I say to them, why do you want to get into the skilled trade? Do you want to get into it because you'll never be out of work? Which is true. Do you want to get into skilled trades because you may have the opportunity to actually teach this trade later on down the road? That's true. Or, or own your own company. Or go into a business with other people and, and begin developing. There's lots of opportunity. But not everybody is meant to go into the skilled trades. It's not a catch-all. 
It's not one of these things where, well, you know, if you don't make it in high school, if you don't really get a good grade in high school, there's always the trades. Stop saying that. The trades is not a catch-all for those who don't make it or don't have enough GPA to make it into university. There are a lot of people in university who probably shouldn't be there. There are a lot of people in trades who probably shouldn't be there. But it's a good life. It's a hard life, but it's a good life. And so I don't want to, I don't want to candy coat this life at all. But I do want to encourage people that it, it, there is more to it than meets the eye. I'm, I'm testimony of it. I, I wouldn't be where I am today without the grace of God in my life through what I learned as a tradesperson, even doing what I'm doing for New Antioch Institute right now. I firmly believe that a lot of stuff that I did at BCIT and the committee work and the extra work and the extra work and degrees and all that stuff is paying dividends now in what I'm doing for New Antioch Institute. And I'm thankful and grateful for it. And there's one thing that I, I always end with and I'll end with today. No one can ever take this away from me. I will always have my trade certification. My skills may get a little rusty, but it won't take me long to get them honed again. And so if everything falls apart, short of Jesus coming back, I can go back to work as a tradesperson. I could, I could, do, my, I could do this tomorrow if I needed to. I'm hoping I don't need to. But it's something that nobody can ever take away from me. And it becomes a really nice safety net. And for some people who are in ministry, they look at this bivocational piece and they think that, that's a really good deal where you can work as a tradesperson and work as a pastor at the same time. There's lots of people who are doing that. I even ran into some students of mine who would work six months out of the year so they could travel the world for the other six months. They would work in Australia for six months and then they would go to Europe and travel Europe and then they'd run out of money and then they'd just start working where they are because they're a tradesperson. <laughs> it's a bit of a different lifestyle. I'm not sure I'd advocate that as strongly as others would, but they can never take it away from me. No one can ever take that away from me. So I want to leave you with that, and I hope that it's encouraged you. I hope that's given some insight into what it means to be a tradesperson. There are so many more stories I could tell, and maybe I will later on, but um, that's life, and it's an apprenticeship for me because I never want to stop learning. There's always something new to learn, and I'm never really going to be a master because there's always more to learn. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on Vocation and the Christian, Life is an Apprenticeship. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us admin at newantiochinstitute.com. We're also on Facebook and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Take care.